Sunderland's general broadcast and in vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the General Broadcast podcast. General Broadcast is a free online learning resource aimed at UK-based student paramedics and newly qualified paramedics. We hope the podcast will provide a useful directory integrating care-based practice examples with the accompanying theory. The podcast are short summaries of topics designed to refresh memories and provide links to other resources for further learning. My name's Josh, I'm a trainee specialist paramedic in critical care. My name's Simon, I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. And for this episode, what we're going to do is we're uh, looking at hypothermic cardiac arrest. What we'll probably do is split this one into two parts. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the pathophysiology of hypothermic cardiac arrest uh, and the road to towards cardiac arrest. And then in the second episode, we'll be looking at the management of the peri-arrest patient and the modifications that we make to uh, a patient who is in hypothermic cardiac arrest. This is a, an, an interesting, but not a particularly common presentation to us in the UK. And that's thanks to our relatively temperate climate. Trying to get an idea of how often hypothermia is encountered as the primary cause of death is quite difficult. But the, the only data I've been able to find suggests that there were 80 deaths last year in Scotland, uh, where, where hypothermia was the uh, was the primary cause of death. And so given that it's so much colder up there, uh, it's very unlikely that uh, in England and in fact in UK practice that we'll, we'll come across a hypothermic cardiac arrest. But there, that chance is still out there and it's all the more reason that we should be prepared to manage it in case we do. Yeah, I'd agree. So although it's probably a rarer topic for our sort of urban colleagues, some of our colleagues that work in areas where there's more winter sports or you know, wilderness enthusiasts, hill walking, some of the sort of mountain ranges we have in, in, in the UK, it may be more relevant to them because uh, they're more likely to come across this, uh, this presentation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people doing expedition medicine as well. I, I know uh, I've got a couple of colleagues that have gone abroad as expedition medics to, to manage people. And obviously they're, they're having to read up and deal on a whole host of things um, like altitude sickness and things that, that we just don't don't encounter in the uh, in the UK. So um, so, yeah, interesting topic to cover. In order to know how we're going to manage hypothermia, we first need to uh, understand its causes and the two different types of hypothermia. So Ultimately, what we're going to be discussing in this podcast is primary hypothermia. Uh, and this is where the uh, core body temperature has decreased due to external exposure and environmental factors. So increasingly, this is being seen in the elderly population who have notoriously poor thermoregulation and homeostasis anyway, and who are being required to ration central heating, for example, ration electricity due to rising energy prices. And so often we're seeing a lot more elderly people who are slightly hypothermic in their own homes because they, they don't want to turn the heating on. Uh, and in addition to this, we're likely to see primary hypothermia in rough sleepers who have perhaps been exposed to the cold, who, who've, uh, who've got wet sleeping rough outside and people that have been exposed to sea temperatures around the UK. Our average sea temperatures are between 6 and 10 degrees in the winter time and immersion in this cold water means that the body loses heat two, between 2 and 5 times faster than it would in air 
as, as water is more conductive of, of thermal en energy. So uh, we, we're likely to see hypothermia in people that have fallen into, into rivers or fallen into the sea um, during, during periods of cold weather. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the other population I'd add to that is our paediatric patients. Children, due to their large surface area volume ratio and larger heads, we all know that you lose heat quickly through your head, will lose heat very quickly. They also have less thermoregulatory responses, so they're, they're not able to adjust as much as we are as adults to, to maintain their temperature. The other types of hypothermia that we might see are conditions associated with a secondary hypothermia. So I, I, I like to think of this as more hypothermia as the symptom rather than the problem. Uh, and there's a whole load of internal organic factors that can that can cause us to, to present as hypothermic, from hypothyroidism to sepsis. Everybody knows the term cold sepsis. And that would be somebody who's presenting with a secondary hypothermia. And it's important to be able to distinguish between the two. Normally, it's quite obvious, but it's important to make that distinction because if it's secondary hypothermia, hypothermia isn't the main problem. Hypothermia is a symptom. Whereas if it's primary, then hypothermia is, uh, is the, the issue that we need to correct. So we've talked about the causes of primary hypothermia, but Josh, how do we recognise hypothermia? So spotting uh, someone who's hypothermic isn't really that difficult, is it? It's not something you need a degree for. You just look for someone who is either saying they're cold, who's shivering, who feels cold, who looks blue and peripherally shut down. That isn't tricky at all. But what can be difficult is judging at what stage of, of hypothermia they fall into, uh, whether it's a, it's a mild hypothermia or a moderate hypothermia or, or, and so on. And, and putting people into those categories can be quite difficult, particularly pre-hospitally. And the main reason for that is the colder someone gets, the less we can rely on our temperature measuring devices. So what you're saying, Josh, is that a tympanic thermometer that we all carry on our ambulances is not a good way to measure temperature? Uh, so tympanic thermometers are fine in people that are normally thermic or have a slight pyrexia. They're, they're brilliant for, for diagnosing people that are virally unwell. Um, we, we do it many times a shift and they're reasonable at telling you when somebody is cold. But the colder they get, the, the more their accuracy uh, deteriorates and the more dubious their accuracy is. And in fact, the the device manufacturers will openly admit that the, the devices will not measure below 32 degrees and they're, and they're not accurate uh, around that temperature. And so when we're trying to classify someone into the lower levels of, of severe hypothermia or, or trying to decide how hypothermic someone is, that becomes a slightly less useful device. Personally, I think putting your hands on them and, and feeling if they're very cold or a bit cold is uh, is about as good. See, I'd agree, and, and put that into clinical practice. Um, I think it's quite hard for some of our student paramedic and, and newly qualified paramedic colleagues to justify not taking a temperature with a tympanic thermometer. We all know that we've got um, performance indicators and audits and things that make up our paperwork. And to go to someone, say, who has been immersed in water or been found outside or in a cold environment and to not stick a tympanic temperature down, some would argue that, that that would be poor practice. But I think this is where we need to have a sensible uh, approach to clinical practice and make a clinical decision based upon 
our clinical gestalt and evidence. So it's not a case of just omitting that result. It's a case of not doing it, but justifying why it's not been done in your documentation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and and I, I'm sure we've all done it. I, I know I've certainly put a tympanic in, in an ear in, in someone in cardiac arrest or something like that and said, I know this is going to be an irrelevant reading on this device or I've, I've put it in somebody's ear who's a little bit cold and said, I know it's going to be a relevant reading and it, it comes up saying low, which the device is telling you their core body temperatures under 34 degrees, I think is what that means. And, and you look at the person and they're talking to you and they're just a little bit shivery uh, and they're a little bit wet and soggy. So you, you know that, that it's giving you an inaccurate reading. So th- there's no point. There's no point doing yeah, it. And, and anecdotally, I, I tested this uh, a couple of years ago. I went down to some of my beach lifeguard colleagues on the beach and did some training with them on, on the on the land. But then after that, they went into the water and one of the guys was wearing a wetsuit went in the water and did uh, an hour's sort of swim training in, in the sea in the summer. It was relatively warm for, for UK temperature of water and came out and I took his tympanic temperature before he went in and after he went in and after he got out, the thermometer read low and I can guarantee to you that he was not hypothermic. It was literally that the tympanic thermometer just cannot read cold people and especially cannot read in people that have got wet ears. So... I would highly advise not using them in patients where it's either a drowning or, or it's a water immersion. And and it's not it's not just tympanic thermometers really. It, there's uh, if you look at the the evidence that's out there, rectal thermometers is uh, uh, is another option. But there's a lot of stuff out there that says you need to make sure it's inserted far enough because if you've got feces in uh, in the rectum, then that will give you a a false reading because you'll be measuring the cold poo as opposed to the internal body temperature. It's it's the same with all thermometers or those those laser forehead thermometers where you've got these massive amounts of vasoconstriction. You're not getting a true reading of the uh, of, of the body's core temperature. And I suppose the only things that would give you accurate readings are esophageal temperatures or um, interarterial uh, sort of probes. But that's obviously not a viable option on the on the ambulances, and certainly not a viable option for people that are just a little bit hypothermic, as opposed to you know peri arrest. Yeah, and I think it's important for our colleagues um, who are maybe more junior in their career to be able to justify this decision. So it is fully supported in the um, European Resuscitation Council guidelines, where they actually say widely available tympanic thermometers are not designed for reading low core temperatures and i i agree so i think it's just having that confidence to say look i i know this thing isn't going to give me an accurate reading because it's not what it's designed for i'll just use my my clinical decision making and and not throw in some meaningless numbers that actually we end up ignoring anyway we're just really taking a temperature to uh fill the box and, on our paperwork that, that's aren't what we? it's about it's, it's not about that you've omitted it because you are not um, doing an assessment properly. It's about clinically justifying your omission, 
which actually means you have thought about it and therefore considered it and therefore that is competent practice. So we've said none of our temperature measuring devices are particularly an option pre-hospitally. So how can we categorise hypothermic patients? Well, there is one option, which is the Swiss staging system. Um, and that's that's something that could potentially assist us. This is a set of clinical criteria that suggests if you've got X, Y and Z, it might correlate with an internal body temperature of of, of whatever. So an example, uh, if someone is conscious but shivering, the system would suggest that their uh, internal body temperature is somewhere between 35 and 32. I think we would agree with that. If they have impaired consciousness and are not shivering, well, it, the Swiss staging system would suggest that their core body temperature is below 32. Uh, and it goes goes on, goes on uh, in in such a fashion. What are your thoughts of the Swiss staging system? Yeah, it's system good to on? try and clinically apply it to symptoms that we're going to see, um, especially given that we've already mentioned that our um, machines don't, um, don't accurately read this. And I think it comes back to something that I'm sure every single person listening to this podcast would have always been told by their seniors and mentors, which is treat your patient, not your machine. So look at the symptoms um, and, and manage them accordingly. Is your patient cold or are they hypothermic? There is a clear difference. The the, the system itself is quite poorly evidenced. It, it seems certainly from the reading I've done around it, it, it appears to be heavy in expert opinion. There's one study that suggests up to 50% of the patients they looked at could be incorrectly categorised um, based on the presenting symptoms when they later did a, an accurate temperature reading. But I don't think that means that this is a useless system just because it's it's not massively evidence-based. I think the principle that it's saying that if someone is impaired consciousness and not shivering, they are clearly more hypothermic than someone who is conscious and is shivering uh, and, and so on and so on is of clinical benefit. So I think we don't necessarily need to draw strict parallels between certain symptoms that we're seeing and an internal core temperature, but but plotting and recognising the, the physiological signs of, of someone who is more unwell due to hypothermia is of benefit. I agree. And I think the, um, the patient who's gone from cold to mildly hypothermic into moderate hypothermia, but is still conscious, the our, their presentation and examination could indicate to us the, the level of hypothermia they are. I think where the challenges will come in uh, is when we get to the management of the hypothermic cardiac arrest patient, which obviously we'll discuss in the next podcast. Yeah, definitely, because a lot of the guidelines and a lot of the stuff is temperature or, or is figure driven isn't it it says if you are below 32 degrees you do x y and z and that can be quite difficult for uh, someone to interpret and someone to put into yeah, practice I, agree. I, think. I think we will talk about it more in the next podcast but i i can certainly imagine that there is a lot of sway in when people do and don't do different interventions so let's talk a little bit about pathophysiology. We said we were going to do it, but we'll uh, we'll try and keep it brief because I know pathophys podcast is quite difficult to listen to. Um, but let's let's just go down the route that a, that a patient would go through and what happens in the body in order to get to the stage of cardiac arrest. So in the early stages, someone who's been exposed to a cold environment, initially the body does a pretty good job at, at trying to 
trying to keep warm and trying to retain its warmth. And it does this primarily through vasoconstriction to limit the heat loss through the skin and the, and, and the surface area of the body. The body begins to vasoconstrict when skin temperature reaches 35 degrees Celsius, so not that cold. And vasoconstriction is maximal when skin temperature reaches 31 degrees. This can be negatively affected in certain circumstances. So ingestion of alcohol is is one example. People know quite well that alcohol will make you lose body heat quicker. And that's because it impedes this early stage and this early attempt at retaining heat by vasodilating and, and, and uh, limiting the body's uh, ability to vasoconstrict. Older patients, so people over 60, also have a, a dampened homeostatic factor and, 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 and dampened uh, ability to vasoconstrict because of uh, a poor production of the, the neurotransmitters that are involved in that response. Interestingly, it's vasoconstriction that is thought to be responsible for something called cold diuresis. So the movement of blood from the peripheries to the central vasculature uh, increases our arterial pressure or increases our blood pressure. And the increase of blood pressure in the, uh, in the renal system on the kidneys forces them to process more fluid. And so that's why people that are in cold weather might pee more. So I know certainly when I've been skiing, um, you, you tend to stop at every, uh, every chalet going down the mountain just to, um, just to pee a bit more. Uh, that's partially because of the glue vine and it's partially because of this cold diuresis making you, uh, making your kidneys process more water um, as a response to the, to the increased blood pressure. This is important to bear in mind when we come to the second half of the podcast, because there's the potential that as well as being hypothermic, patients can be hypovolemic and have electrolyte abnormalities. And it's because of this mechanism that, that, that that's the case. So, uh, so we, we need to bear in mind that patients will lose more fluid as they become hypothermic. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's definitely something that we would consider an ED um, when we're working up a hypothermic patient, we would definitely be looking for um, electrolyte abnormalities on blood gases and be running, you know, um, various tests for uh, hypoglycemia, hypo and hyperkalemia, uh, creatinine um, and um, magnesium and, and various electrolyte disturbances are, are somewhat common. So in addition to this, We've discussed how the body tries to limit heat loss, but the body also uh, does something called thermogenesis, where it, it tries to create heat. So it increases cellular metabolism to, to create heat. Uh, the body begins unconscious behavioural movements, such as fidgeting, involuntary movements, shivering, to, to try and generate some heat. This grows more intense uh, as core body temperature drops until around 31 degrees Celsius. So when we reach a core temperature of 31 degrees Celsius, this is where the body stops shivering. It's what we were talking about earlier, Josh, where I think now we're starting to go into the peri-arrest territory, the cardiac arrest territory, where patient assessment becomes real challenging. Definitely, um, as, as we get colder, these patients are going to have significantly reduced motor function. They'll probably have decreased mental function uh, as well is what is what we'll be noting. They might have mild confusion, slurred speech, eventually progressing to, to a tangible reduction in their GCS and eventually unconsciousness. As the body passes 32 degrees core temperature, we start to notice some cardiac instability and 
we enter a, a risky area of cardiac dysrhythmias. So initially, hypothermic patients are likely to present with a sinus bradycardia. This is due to decreased depolarizing of the sinoatrial node. And it's worth bearing in mind that if we do find these patients in a sinus bradycardia, it's not vaguely induced. So atropine isn't going to bear any benefit. What these patients need is warming up, not atropine. As, as they get colder, we might notice something called Osborne waves or J waves, which is a unique morphology of, of the T wave uh, on, the, uh, on the ECG caused by a difference in the electrophysiology of the peri and the epicardium. Um, so repolarization is affected. And as our core temperature drops further, cardiac conduction worsens more so. Uh, and it's quite common for patients to develop AF or, or junction escape rhythms when, uh, when body temperature falls to around 32, 31 degrees Celsius. And I think at this stage, Josh, it's really important to mention that as soon as we start to notice ECG abnormalities, um, the Osborne waves, your atrial arrhythmias, as you've quite rightly said, we need to start to really think about how we handle our patients and how we move them. Because if we move them too strenuously, too vigorously, then we can, unfortunately, due to the myocardial instability, put them into VF arrest ourselves by our rough handling. So I think it's really important that we handle these patients as minimally as possible and move them as gently as practically as it can. Obviously, the pre-hospital environment can throw us some challenging places to remove people from, but I think it's just worth us bearing in mind that at this point, as little movement as possible and being as gentle as possible is, is essential for their care. Yeah, absolutely. So these patients could go into a VF arrest. That's that's really highly possible. The other option is they could be in a low flow PEA. So it's important that we uh, get monitoring on these patients quickly to, to, to see which they're in, because unlike a lot of other pathologies where you can kind of guess whether they'll go into a shockable or non-shockable rhythm, hypothermic patients in, in this way could go into either. Just as a point there, Josh, I think it's worth mentioning that arrhythmias are unlikely to be hypothermia induced at temperatures that are over 32 degrees and it's always worth still considering our differential diagnosis such as is this an acute coronary syndrome which has caused this person to collapse and be in the environment we found them in in the first place so we always got to remember our differentials just because we're we're considering a hypothermic patient so at this point our patient's temperature is dropping so low that we're approaching the stage of unconsciousness. However, before we get to that point, there is a quite strange phenomenon that occurs, which I'd never heard of before, but I understand that you've read up on Josh called paradoxical undressing. Yeah, so this is this is something I, I as soon as I read it, I just had to put it put it into the article. One, because it's just cruel cruel poetry as so many things in in medicine and uh, physiology are but two because it, it presents a valid thing for us as first responders to uh, to bear in mind so this is thought to be a pre-terminal survival instinct or part of or one of two pre-terminal survival instincts as gcs is really really low you know these are patients that are just about to become unconscious this case of, of paradoxical undressing occurs and is thought to happen in between 
25 to 50% of terminal hypothermic cases. So it's not an insignificant number of people that this can happen. And this is the, the case where just prior to death, patients appear to have removed some or all of their clothes. And it's thought that this is due to a massive vasodilatory event. So we, we talked earlier about the, all this vasoconstriction that's been going on um, and, and the body is maximally vasoconstricted. The myofithelium of, of, the, of the blood vessels have been going at it potentially for hours, constricting as, as, as much as they can. And just prior to death, it's thought that these, these muscles or the myothelium um, fatigue and give in. And this blood that's been held in the core uh, of, 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 the per, of the person's body begins to make its way out to the peripheries. And uh, patients are thought to feel as though they're burning or as though they've been set on fire just, just prior to death. And so that's where this, this phenomenon comes from, that, that people start taking their clothes off, stripping down completely naked, uh, because they they have all this hot blood rushing or relatively hot blood rushing to uh, to their peripheries. And sadly, probably at the same time, that massive vasodilatory event has booted their blood pressure through the floor. And it's likely that that uh, that, that causes them to, to enter cardiac arrest and, and die. And the reason that I'm mentioning this is because this has confused rescuers and, and, and members of, of the emergency service and the members of the police because they found people naked, perhaps in their own homes, and the house has been has been locked, uh, or they've been found naked on, on mountainsides and, and on moorland. And it's thought that they've been sexually assaulted or perhaps murdered and taken there against their will. But that, that's not, potentially, that's not the case. It, it might be this, uh, this actually, phenomenon. And I think back to- Within my paramedic career, I have had uh, a patient with similar to this. And at the time, my thought was that it must have just been a confused older person that went outside with no clothes on. But actually, on reflection, learning about this um, would you know, it could have been possible that, that that's what happened to them. And there's there's a lot of literature out there that, that's saying, you know, police investigations have have, uh, have kicked off and, and this has been what's surmised. There's also something known as burrowing phenomena, where, again, it, it's thought that it's the the most primal aspects of the brain that are, that are still functioning just before we go into unconsciousness and, and people burrow and get into tiny, tiny spaces. People have been found under beds or, or in suitcases in some Swedish literature. And, it, and again, it's, it's very odd uh, phenomena that, that occur in these pre-terminal, in these pre-terminal so stages. We've now got to the point where our patient has probably fallen unconscious uh, and we're now extremely close to the, the point at which they go into cardiac arrest. So just summarise for us, Josh, how does this unconscious patient who's already having some arrhythmias finally end up as our cardiac arrest patient? It could be a, a number of reasons. Uh, as we've said, it, it could be they, they've gone into AF and this very agitated myocardium, something has has agitated it and caused it to go into uh, caused it to go into VF. It might be our movement, or it it could be patient's movement if if they're doing something like burrowing phenomena or taking their clothes off, as we've discussed. They could have this massive vasodilatory event that we discussed that occurs just prior to paradoxical undressing. Patients could have this massive drop in blood pressure, so the the heart might still be beating, but there's little or no blood for it to pump around or it could be due to an r on t phenomena uh, as as the the myocytes are starting to 
become very agitated and, and potentially depolarize at random, you could have the heart trying to repolarize as it's depolarizing, and, and that would prompt the patient to go into VF as well. That brings us to the end of this episode. We've summarized how patients get to cardiac arrest and some of the pathophysiology that's involved. Next episode, we're gonna talk about the management of the peri-arrest patient and the modifications we make to cardiac arrest if a patient is hypothermic. But that's all for this episode. So join us for part two.